Disc Three. Chapter Eight. My father included Aunt Harriet's name in our prayers on the evening of the day the news came. But after that, she was never referred to again. It was as though she had been wiped out of every memory but mine. There, however, she remained very clearly, given form at a time when I had only heard her, as an upright figure with a face drained of hope, and a voice saying clearly, "I am not ashamed; I am only beaten." And too, as I had last seen her, looking up at the house. Nobody told me how she came to die, but somehow I knew that it had not been by accident. There was a great deal that I did not understand in what I had overheard, and yet, in spite of that, it was quite the most disturbing occurrence I had known yet. It alarmed me with a sense of insecurity far greater, for some unperceived reason, than I had suffered over Sophie. For several nights I dreamed of Aunt Harriet lying in the river. Still clasping the white bundle to her, while the water swirled her hair round her pale face, and her wide-open eyes saw nothing, and I was frightened. This had happened simply because the baby was just a bit different in some way from other babies. It had something, or lacked something, so that it did not exactly accord with the definition. There was the little thing that made it not quite right, not quite. Like other people, a mutant, my father had called it. A mutant. I thought of some of the poker work texts. I recalled the address of a visiting preacher, the detestation there had been in his voice when he thundered from the pulpit, "Accursed is the mutant." Accursed is the mutant. The mutant, the enemy, not only of the human race but of all the species God had decreed. The seed of the devil within, trying unflaggingly, eternally, to come to fruition in order that it might destroy the divine order, and turn our land, the stronghold of God's will upon earth, into a lewd chaos like the fringes. Trying to make it a place without the law. Like the lands in the south that Uncle Axel had spoken of, where the plants and the animals and the almost human beings too brought forth travesties, where true stock had given place to unnamable creatures, abominable growths flourished, and the spirits of evil mocked the Lord with obscene fantasies. Just a small difference. The little thing was the first step. I prayed very earnestly those nights. Oh God, I said, please, please, God, let me be like other people. I don't want to be different. Won't you make it so that when I wake up in the morning, I'll be just like everyone else? Please, God, please. But in the morning. When I tested myself, I'd soon pick up Rosalind or one of the others and know that the prayer hadn't altered anything. I had to get up still, just the same person who had gone to bed the night before, and I had to go into the big kitchen and eat my breakfast facing the panel, which had somehow stopped being just part of the furniture, 
and seemed to stare back at me with the words, Accursed is the mutant in the sight of God and man. And I went on being very frightened. After about the fifth night that praying hadn't done any good, Uncle Axel caught me leaving the breakfast table and said, I'd better come along and help him mend a plough. After we'd worked on that for a couple of hours, he declared a rest, so we went out of the forge to sit in the sun, with our backs against a wall. He gave me a chunk of oatcake, and we munched for a minute or two. Then he said, Well now, Davy, let's have it. Have what? I said stupidly. Whatever it is that's been making you look as if you were sickening for something the last day or two, he told me. What's your trouble? Has somebody found out? No, I said. He looked greatly relieved. Well, what is it then? So I told him about Aunt Harriet and the baby. Before I had finished, I was talking through tears. It was such a relief to be able to share it with someone. It was her face as she drove away, I explained. I've never seen anyone look like that before. I keep on seeing it in the water. I looked up at him as I finished. His face was as grim as I'd ever seen it, with the corners of his mouth pulled down. So that was it, he said, nodding once or twice. It was all because the baby was different, I repeated. And there was Sophie, too. I didn't understand properly before. I'm frightened, Uncle Axel. What'll they do when they find out I'm different? He put his hand on my shoulder. No one else is ever going to know about it, he told me again. No one but me, and I'm safe. It did not seem as reassuring now as it had been when he said it before. There was that one who stopped, I reminded him. Perhaps they found out about him. He shook his head. I reckon you can rest easy on that, Davy. I found out there was a boy killed just about the time you said. Walter Brent, his name was, about nine years old. He was fooling around when they were felling timber, and a tree got him, poor lad. Where? I asked. About nine or ten miles away, on a farm over by Chipping, he said. I thought back. The Chipping direction certainly fitted and it was just the kind of accident that would account for a sudden, unexplained stop. Without any ill will to the unknown Walter, I hoped and thought that was the explanation. Uncle Axel backtracked a bit. There's no reason at all why anyone should find out. There's nothing to show. They can only know if you let them. Learn to watch yourself, Davy, and they'll never find out. What did they do to Sophie? I asked once more. But again he refused to be drawn on that. He went on. Remember what I told you. They think they are the true image, but they can't know for sure. And even if the old people were the same kind as I am, and they are, and what of it? Oh, I know people tell tales about how wonderful they were, and how wonderful their world was, and how one day we'll get back again all the things they had. There's a lot of nonsense mixed up in what they say about them. But even if there's a lot of truth, too, what's the good of trying so hard to keep in their tracks? Where are they in their wonderful world now? God sent tribulation upon them, I quoted. Sure, sure, 
You certainly have taken in the preacher words, haven't you? It's easy enough to say, but not so easy to understand, especially when you've seen a bit of the world and what it has meant. Tribulation wasn't just tempests, hurricanes, floods and fires like the thing they had in the Bible. It was like all of them together, and something a lot worse, too. They made the black coasts and the ruins that glow there at night and the badlands. Maybe there's a precedent for that in Sodom and Gomorrah. Only this should be kind of bigger. But what I don't understand is the queer things it did to what was left. Except in Labrador, I suggested. Not except in Labrador, but less in Labrador and youth than any other place, he corrected me. What can it have been, this terrible thing that must have happened? And why? I can almost understand that God, made angry, might destroy all living things or the world itself, but I don't understand this instability, this mess of deviations. It makes no sense. I did not see his real difficulty. After all, God, being omnipotent, could cause anything he liked. I tried to explain this to Uncle Axel, but he shook his head. We've got to believe that God is sane, Davy boy. We'd be lost indeed if we didn't do that. But whatever happened out there, he waved his hand round the horizon at large, what happened there was not sane, not sane at all. It was something vast, yet something beneath the wisdom of God. So what was it? What can it have been? But tribulation, I began. Uncle Axel moved impatiently. A word, he said. A rusted mirror reflecting nothing. It'd do the preachers good to see it for themselves. They'd not understand, but they might begin to think. They might begin to ask themselves, What are we doing? What are we preaching? What were the old people really like? What was it they did to bring this frightful disaster down upon themselves and all the world? And after a bit they might begin to say, Are we right? Tribulation has made the world a different place. Can we, therefore, ever hope to build in it the kind of world the old people lost? Should we try to? What would be gained if we were to build it up again so exactly that it culminated in another tribulation? For it is clear, boy, that however wonderful the old people were, they were not too wonderful to make mistakes, and nobody knows, or is ever likely to know, where they were wise and where they were mistaken. Much of what he was saying went right over my head, but I thought I caught its gist. I said, But, Uncle, if we don't try to be like the old people and rebuild the things that have been lost, what can we do? Well, we might try being ourselves and build for the world that is instead of for one that's gone, he suggested. I don't think I understand, I told him. You mean not bother about the true line or the true image, not mind about deviations? Not... Quite that, he said, and then looked sidelong at me. You heard some heresy from your aunt. Well, here's a bit more from your uncle. What do you think it is that makes a man a man? I started on the definition. He cut me off after five words. It is not, he said. A wax figure could have all that, and he'd still be a wax figure, wouldn't he? I suppose he would. Well, then. What makes a man a man is something inside him. A soul, I suggested. No, he said. Souls are just counters for churches to collect all the same value like nails. No, what makes man man is mind. 
It's not a thing, it's a quality, and minds aren't all the same value. They're better or worse, and the better they are, the more they mean. See where we're going? No, I admitted. It's this way, Davy. I reckon the church people are more or less right about most deviations, only not for the reasons they say. They're right because most deviations aren't any good. Say they did allow a deviation to live like us, what would be the good of it? Would a dozen arms and legs or a couple of heads or eyes like telescopes give him any more of the quality that makes him a man? They would not. Man got his physical shape, the true image they call it, before he even knew he was a man at all. It's what happened inside after that that made him human. He discovered he had what nothing else had, mind. That put him on a different level. Like a lot of the animals, he was physically pretty nearly as good as he needed to be. But he had this new quality, mind, which was only in its early stages, and he developed that. That was the only thing he could usefully develop. It's the only way open to him, to develop new qualities of mind. Uncle Axel paused reflectively. There was a doctor on my second ship who talked that way, and the more I got to thinking it over, the more I reckoned it was the way that made sense. Now, as I see it, some way or another, you and Rosalind and the others have got a new quality of mind. To pray God to take it away is wrong. It's like asking him to strike you blind or make you deaf. I know what you're up against, Davy, but funking it isn't the way out. There isn't an easy way out. You have to come to terms with it. You'll have to face it and decide that since... That's the way things are with you. What is the best use you can make of it and still keep yourself safe? I did not, of course, follow him clearly through that the first time. Some of it stayed in my mind. The rest of it I reconstructed in half-memory from later talks. I began to understand better later on, particularly after Michael had gone to school. That evening I told the others about Walter. We were sorry about his accident. Nevertheless, it was a relief to all of them to know that it had been simply an accident. One odd thing I discovered was that he was probably some kind of distant relation. My grandmother's name had been Brent. After that, it seemed wiser for us to find out one another's names in order to prevent such an uncertainty occurring again. There were now eight of us in all. Well, when I say that, I mean that there were eight who could talk in thought shapes. There were some others who sometimes sent traces, but so weak and so limited that they did not count. They were like someone who is not quite blind, but is scarcely able to see more than to know whether it is day or night. The occasional thought shapes we caught from them were involuntary, and too fuzzy and damp to make sense. The other six were Michael, who lived about three miles to the north, Sally and Catherine, whose homes were on neighbouring farms two miles further on, and therefore across the border of the adjoining district. Mark, almost nine miles to the northwest, and Anne and Rachel, a pair of sisters living on a big farm only a mile and a half to the west. Anne, then something over thirteen, was the eldest. Walter Brent had been the youngest by six months. Knowing who we were was our second stage in gaining confidence. It somehow increased a comforting feeling of mutual support. Gradually I found that the texts and warnings against mutants on the wall stood out at me less vividly. They toned down and merged once more into the general background. It was not that memories of Aunt Harriet and of Sophie were dulled. It was rather that they did not jump so frighteningly and so often into my mind.
Also, I was soon helped by having a great many new things to think about. Our schooling, as I have said, was sketchy, mostly writing, reading from a few simple books, and the Bible and repentances, which were not at all simple or easy to understand, and a little elementary figuring. It was not much equipment. Certainly, it was far too little to satisfy Michael's parents, so they sent him to a school over in Kentuck. There he began to learn a lot of things our old ladies had never thought of. It was natural for him to want the rest of us to know about them too. At first he was not very clear, and the distance being so much more than we were used to gave us all trouble. But presently, after a few weeks' practice, it became much sharper and better, and he was able to hand on to the rest of us pretty nearly everything he was being taught. Even some of the things he did not understand properly himself became clearer when we all thought about them, so that we were able to help him a little too, and it pleased us to know that he was almost always at the top of his class. It was a great satisfaction to learn and know more. It helped to ease one over a lot of puzzling matters, and I began to understand many of the things Uncle Axel talked about much better. Nevertheless, it brought too the first taste of complications from which we would never again be free. Quite quickly, it became difficult always to remember how much one was supposed to know. It called for a lot of restraint to remain silent in the face of simple errors, to listen patiently to silly arguments based on misconceptions, to do a job in the customary way when one knew there was a better way. There were bad moments, of course. The careless remark that raised some eyebrows, the note of impatience towards those one should respect, the incautious suggestion, but the missteps were few, for the sense of danger now lay closer to the surface in all of us. Somehow, through caution, luck, and quick recoveries, we managed to escape direct suspicion and live our two diverging lives for the next six years without the sense of peril becoming sharp. Until, in fact, the day when we discovered that the eight of us had suddenly become nine. Chapter Nine. It was a funny thing about my little sister Petra; she seemed so normal. We never suspected, not one of us. She was a happy child and pretty from a baby, with her close golden curls. I can still see her as a brightly dressed little thing, constantly dashing hither and thither at a staggering run, clasping an atrociously cross-eyed doll which she loved with uncritical passion. A toy-like creature herself, prone as any other child to bumps, tears, chuckles, solemn moments, and a very sweet trust. I loved her. Everybody, even my father, conspired to spoil her, with an endearing lack of success. Not even a wandering thought of difference crossed my mind concerning her, until it abruptly happened. We were harvesting. Up in the twelve-acre, there were six men mowing an echelon. I had just given up my scythe to another man, and was helping with the stooking by way of a breather, when, without any warning, I was struck. I had never known anything like it. One moment I was contentedly. Unhurriedly binding and propping up sheaves, the next, it was as if something had hit me physically inside my head. Very likely, I actually staggered under it. Then there was pain, a demand pulling like a fishhook embedded in my mind. 
There was, in the surprise of the first few moments at any rate, no question whether or not I should go. I was obeying it in a daze. I dropped the sheaf I was holding and pelted off across the field, past a blur of amazed faces. I kept on running. I did not know why, except that it was urgent. Across half the twelve-acre, into the lane, over the fence, down the slope of the east pasture towards the river. Pounding across the slope on a slant, I could see the field that ran down to the far side of the river, one of Angus Morton's field, crossed by a path that led to the footbridge, and on the path was Rosalind, running like the wind. I kept on, down to the bank, along past the footbridge, downstream towards the deeper pools. I had no uncertainty. I kept right on to the brink of the second pool, and went into a dive without a check. I came up quite close to Petra. She was in the deep water against a steep bank, holding on to a little bush. It was bent over and down, and the roots were on the point of pulling free. A couple of strokes took me near enough to catch her under the arms. The compulsion ebbed suddenly and faded away. I towed her to an easier landing place. When I found Bottom and could stand up, I saw Rosalind's startled face peering anxiously at me over the bushes. Who is it? She asked in real words and a shaky voice. She put her hand on her forehead. Who was able to do that? I told her. Petra, she repeated, staring incredulously. I carried my little sister ashore and laid her on the grass. She was exhausted and only semi-conscious, but there did not seem to be anything seriously wrong with her. Rosalind came and knelt on the grass on the other side of her. We looked down at the sopping dress and the darkened, matted curls. Then we gazed across her at one another. I didn't know, I told her. I'd no idea she was one of us. Rosalind put her hands to her face, fingertips on her temples. She shook her head slightly and looked at me from disturbed eyes. She isn't, she said. Something like us, but not one of us. None of us could command like that. She's something much more than we are. Other people came running up then, some who had followed me from the twelve-acre, some from the other side, wondering what had made Rosalind go tearing out of the house as if it were on fire. I picked Petra up to carry her home. One of the men from the field looked at me in a puzzled way. But how did you know? he asked. I didn't hear a thing. Rosalind turned an incredulous expression of surprise towards him. What? With the way she was yelling? I'd have thought anybody who wasn't deaf would have heard her halfway to Kentak. The man shook his head doubtfully, but the fact that we had both apparently heard it seemed confirmation enough to make them all uncertain. I said nothing. I was busy trying to fend off agitated questions from the others, telling them to wait until either I or Rosalind was alone and could attend to them without rousing suspicions. That night, for the first time in years... I had a once familiar dream. Only this time, when the knife gleamed high in my father's right hand, the deviation that struggled in his left was not a calf. It was not Sophie, either. It was Petra. I woke up, sweating with fright. The next day I tried to send thought shapes to Petra. It seemed to me important for her to know as soon as possible that she must not give herself away. I tried hard, but I could make no contact with her. The rest tried, too, in turn, but there was no response. 
I wondered whether I should try to warn her in ordinary words, but Rosalind was against that. It must have been panic that brought it out, she said. If she isn't aware of it now, she probably doesn't even know it happened, so it might easily be an unnecessary danger to tell her about it at all. She's only a little over six, remember. I don't think it is fair or safe to burden her until it's necessary. There was general agreement with Rosalind's view. All of us knew that it is not easy to keep on watching each word all the time, even when you've had to practice it for years. We decided to postpone telling Petra until either some occasion made it necessary, or until she was old enough to understand more clearly what we were warning her about. In the meantime, we would test occasionally to see whether we could make contact with her. Otherwise, the matter should rest as it stood at present. We saw no reason then why it should not continue to stand as it did for all of us. No alternative, indeed. If we did not remain hidden, we should be finished. In the last few years, we had learnt more of the people round us and the way they felt. What had seemed five or six years ago a kind of rather disquieting game had grown grimmer as we understood more about it. Essentially, it had not changed. Still, our whole consideration, if we were to survive, must be to keep our true selves hidden, to walk, talk, and live indistinguishably from other people. We had a gift, a sense which Michael complained bitterly should have been a blessing, but was little better than a curse. The stupidest Norm was happier. He could feel that he belonged. We did not, and because we did not, we had no positive. We were condemned to negatives, to not revealing ourselves, to not speaking when we would, to not using what we knew, to not being found out, to a life of perpetual deception, concealment, and lying. The prospect of continued negativeness stretching out ahead chafed him more than it did the rest of us. His imagination took him further, giving him a clearer vision of what such frustrations were going to mean. But it was no better at suggesting an alternative than ours were. As far as I was concerned, a firm grasp of the negative in the cause of survival had been quite enough to occupy me. I was only just beginning to perceive the vacancy left by the absent positive. It was chiefly my appreciation of danger that had sharpened as I grew up. That had become hardened one afternoon of the summer in the year before we discovered Petra. It was a bad season, that. We had lost three fields, so had Angus Morton. Altogether there had been thirty-five field burnings in the district. There had been a higher deviation rate among the spring births of the stock, not only our own stock, but everyone's, and particularly among the cattle, than had been known for twenty years. There seemed to be more wild cats of various sizes prowling out of the woods by night than ever before. Every week someone was before the court charged with attempted concealment of deviational crops or the slaughter and consumption of undeclared offences among stock, and to cap it all, there had been no less than three district alerts on account of raids in force from the fringes. It was just after the stand-down following the last of these that I happened across old Jacob grumbling to himself as he forked muck in the yard. "'What is it?' I asked him, pausing beside him. He jabbed the fork into the muck and leant one hand on the shaft. He had been an old man forking muck ever since I could remember. I couldn't imagine that he had ever been or would be anything else. 
he turned to me a lined face, mostly hidden in white hair and whiskers, which always made me think of Elijah. Beans, he said. Now my bloody beans are wrong. First my potatoes, then my tomatoes, then my lettuces, now my goddamn beans. Never knew a year like it. The others I've had before, but who ever heard of beans getting tribulated? Are you sure? I said. Sure, of course I am. Think I don't know the way a bean ought to look at my age? He glared at me out the white fuzz. It's certainly a bad year, I agreed. Bad, he said. It's ruination. Weeks of work gone up in smoke. Big sheep and cows gobbling up good food just to produce abominations. Men making off and standing too so's a fellow can't get on with his own work for looking after theirs. Even my own bit of garden is tribulated as hell itself. Bad, you're right, and worse to come, I reckon. He shook his head. Aye, worse to come, he repeated with gloomy satisfaction. Why, I inquired. It's a judgment, he told me. And they deserve it. No morals, no principles. Look at young Ted Norbert. It's a bit of a fine for hiding a letter of ten and eating all but two before he was found out. Enough to bring his father up out of his grave. Why, if he'd done a thing like that, not that he ever would, mind you, but if he had, do you know what he'd have got? I shook my head. It'd have been a public shaming on a Sunday, a week of penances, and a tenth of all he had, he told me forcibly. So you'd not find people doing that kind of thing much then, but now, what do they care about a bit of a fine? He spat disgustedly into the muck pile. It's the same all round, slackness, laxness, nobody caring beyond a bit of lip service. You can see it everywhere nowadays. But God is not mocked. Bringing tribulation down on us again, they are. A season like this is a start. I'm glad I'm an old man and not likely to see the fall of it. But it's coming, you mark my words. Government regulations made by a lot of sniveling, weak-hearted, weak-witted babblers in the East. That's what the trouble is. A lot of namby-pamby politicians and churchmen who ought to know better, too. Men who've never lived in unstable country, don't know anything about it. Very likely never seen a mutant in their lives, and they sit there whittling away year after year at the laws of God, reckoning they know better. No wonder we get seasons like this sent as a warning. But do they read the warning and heed it? Do they? He spat again. How do they think the Southwest was made safe and civilized for God's people? How do they think the mutants were kept under and the purity standards set up? It wasn't by fiddling little fines that a man could pay once a week and not notice. It was by honoring the law and punishing anybody who transgressed it, so that they knew they were punished. When my father was a young man, a woman who bore a child that wasn't in the image was whipped for it. If she bore three out of the image, she was uncertified, outlawed, and sold. It made them careful about their purity and their prayers. My father reckoned there was a lot less trouble with mutants on account of it, and when there were any, they were burnt like other deviations. Burnt? I exclaimed. He looked at me. Isn't that the way to cleanse deviations? he demanded fiercely. Yes, I admitted, with crops and stock, but the other kind is the worst, he snapped. It is a devil mocking the true image. Of course they should be burnt like they used to be, 
But what happened? The sentimentalists in Rigo, who never have to deal with them themselves, said, even though they aren't human, they look nearly human, therefore extermination looks like murder or execution, and that troubles some people's minds. So because a few wishy-washy minds did not have enough resolution and faith, there were new laws about near-human deviations. They mustn't be cleansed, they must be allowed to live or die naturally. They must be outlawed and driven into the fringes, or, if they are infants, simply exposed there to take their chance. And that is supposed to be more merciful. At least the government has a sense to understand that they mustn't be allowed to breed and sees to it that they shan't. Though I'd be willing to bet there's a party against that, too. And what happens? You get more fringes, dwellers, and that means you get more and bigger raids and lose time and money holding them back, all lost because of a namby-pamby dodging of the main issue. What sort of thinking is it to say, accursed is the mutant, and then treat him like a half-brother? But a mutant isn't responsible for... I began... Isn't responsible, sneered the old man. Is a tiger cat responsible for being a tiger cat? But you kill it. You can't afford to have it run loose. Repentance, he says, to keep pure the stock of the Lord by fire. That's not good enough for the bloody government now. Give me the old days when a man was allowed to do his duty and keep the place clean, heading right for another dose of tribulation we are now, he went on muttering looking like an ancient and wrathful prophet of doom. All these concealments, and they'll try again for want of a proper lesson. Women who've given birth to a blasphemy just going to church and saying how sorry they are, and they'll try not to do it again. Angus Morton's great horse is still around, an officially approved mockery of the purity laws. A damned inspector who just wants to hold his job and not offend them in Rigo. And then people wonder why we get tribulated seasons. He went on grumbling and spitting with disgust. A venomously puritanical old man. I asked Uncle Axel whether there were a lot of people who really felt the way old Jacob talked. He scratched his cheek thoughtfully. Quite a few of the old ones. They still feel it's a personal responsibility, like it used to be before there were inspectors. Some of the middle-aged are that way, too, but most of them are willing enough to leave it as it is. They're not so set on the forms as their fathers were. They don't reckon it matters much what way it's done, so long as the mutants don't breed and things go along all right. But give them a run of years with instability as high as it is this year, and I'd not say for certain they'd take it quietly. Why should the deviation rate suddenly get high some years? I asked him. He shook his head. I don't know. Something to do with the weather, they say. You get a bad winter with gales from the southwest, and up goes the deviation rate. Not the next season, but the one after that. Something comes over from the badlands, they say. Nobody knows what, but it looks as though they're right. The old men see it as a warning, just a reminder of tribulation sent to keep us on the right path, and they make the most of it. Next year is going to be a bad one, too. People will listen to them more, then. They'll have a sharp eye for scapegoats. He concluded by giving me a long, thoughtful look. I had taken the hint and passed it on to the others. Sure enough, the season had been almost as tribulated as the one before, and there was a tendency to look for scapegoats. Public feeling towards concealments was noticeably less tolerant than it had been the previous summer, 
and it increased the anxiety we should in any case have felt over our discovery of Petra. For a week after the river incident, we listened with extra care for any hint of suspicion about it. We found none, however. Evidently, it had been accepted that both Rosalind and I, in different directions, had happened to hear cries for help which must, in any case, have been faint at the distance. We were able to relax again, but not for long. Only about a month went by before we had a new source of misgiving. Anne announced that she was going to marry. Chapter 10 There was a shade of defiance in Anne, even when she told us. At first we did not take it very seriously. We found it difficult to believe, and we did not want to believe, that she was serious. For one thing, the man was Alan Irvin, the same Alan I had fought on the bank of the stream and who had informed on Sophie. Anne's parents ran a good farm, not a great deal smaller than Wacknook itself. Alan was the blacksmith's son. His prospects were those of becoming the blacksmith himself in his turn. He had the physique for it. He was tall and healthy, but that was about as far as he went. Quite certainly Anne's parents would be more ambitious for her than that, so we scarcely expected anything to come of it. We were wrong. Somehow she brought her parents round to the idea, and the engagement was formally recognised. At that point we became alarmed. Abruptly we were forced to consider some of the implications, and, young as we were, we could see enough of them to make us anxious. It was Michael who put it to Anne first. You can't, Anne. For your own sake you mustn't, he told her. It'd be like tying yourself for life to a cripple. Do think, Anne, do really think what it is going to mean. She came back at him angrily. I'm not a fool. Of course I've thought. I've thought more than you have. I'm a woman. I've a right to marry and have children. There are three of you and five of us. Are you saying that two of us must never marry, never have any lives or homes of our own? If not, then two of us have got to marry Norms. I'm in love with Alan, and I intend to marry him. You ought to be grateful. It'll help to simplify things for the rest of you. That doesn't follow, Michael argued. We can't be the only ones. There must be others like us, beyond our range, somewhere. If we wait a little, why should I wait? It might be for years or for always. I've got Alan, and you want me to waste years waiting for someone who may never come, or whom I may hate if he does. You want me to give up Alan and risk being cheated of everything. Well, I don't intend to. I didn't ask to be the way we are, but I've as much right to get what I can out of life as anyone else. It isn't going to be easy. But do you think I'd find it easier going on like this year after year? It can't be easy for any of us. But it isn't going to make it any better if two of us have to give up all hope of love and affection. Three of us can marry three of you. What is going to happen to the other two, then, the two who'll be on the outside? They won't be in any group. Do you mean they ought to be cheated out of everything? It's you who haven't thought, Michael, or any of you. I know what I intend to do. The rest of you don't know what you intend to do because you're none of you in love, except David and Rosalind, and so you've none of you faced it. That was partially true as far as it went. But if we had not faced all the problems before they arose, we were well aware of those that were constantly with us, and of those the main one was the need of dissembling, 
of leading all the time a suffocating half-life with our families. One of the things we looked forward to most was relief some day from that burden. And though we'd few positive ideas how it could be achieved, we could all realize that marriage to a norm would become intolerable in a very short while. Our position in our present homes was bad enough. To have to go on living intimately with someone who had no thought shapes would be impossible. For one thing, any of us would still have more in common with the rest and be closer to them than to the norm that he or she had married. It could not be anything but a sham of a marriage when the two were separated by something wider than a different language, which had always been hidden by the one from the other. It would be misery, perpetual lack of confidence, and insecurity. There'd be the prospect of a lifetime's guarding against slips, and we knew well enough already that occasional slips were inevitable. Other people seem so dim, so half-perceived compared with those whom one knows through their thought shapes. And I don't suppose normals, who can never share their thoughts, can understand how we are so much more a part of one another. What comprehension can they have of thinking together, so that two minds are able to do what one could not? And we don't have to flounder among the shortcomings of words. It's difficult for us to falsify or pretend a thought, even if we want to. On the other hand, it's almost impossible for us to misunderstand one another. What, then, could there be for any of us tied closely to a half-dumb normal who could never at best make more than a clever guess at anyone else's feelings or thoughts? Nothing but prolonged unhappiness and frustration, with, sooner or later, a fatal slip, or else an accumulation of small slips gradually fostering suspicion. Anne had seen this just as well as the rest of us, but now she pretended to ignore it. She began to defy her difference by refusing to respond to us, though whether she shut her mind off altogether or continued to listen without taking part, we could not tell. We suspected the former as being more in character, but being unsure, we were not even able to discuss among ourselves what course, if any, we ought to take. Possibly there was no active course. I myself could think of none. Rosalind, too, was at a loss. Rosalind had grown into a tall, slim young woman now. She was handsome with a face you could not help watching. She was attractive, too, in the way she moved and carried herself. Several of the younger men had felt the attraction and gravitated towards her. She was civil to them, but no more. She was competent, decisive, self-reliant. Perhaps she intimidated them for before long they drifted their attentions elsewhere. She would not be entangled with any of them. Very likely it was for that reason that she was more shocked than any of us by what Anne proposed to do. We used to meet discreetly and not dangerously often. No one but the others, I think, ever suspected anything between us. We had to make love in a snatched, unhappy way when we did meet, wondering miserably whether there would ever be a time when we should not have to hide ourselves. And somehow the business of Anne made us more wretched still. Marriage to a norm, even the kindest and best of them, was unthinkable for both of us. The only other person I could turn to for advice was Uncle Axel. He knew, as did everyone else, about the forthcoming marriage, but it was news to him that Anne was one of us, and he received it lugubriously. 
After he had turned it over in his mind, he shook his head. No. It won't do, Davy. You're right there. I've been seeing these last five or six years how it wouldn't do. But I've just been hoping that maybe it had never come to it. I reckon you're all up against a wall, or you'd not be telling me now. I nodded. She wouldn't listen to us, I told him. Now she's gone further. She won't respond at all. She says that's over. She never wanted to be different from normals. Now she wants to be as like them as she can. It was the first real row we've ever had. She ended up by telling us she hated all of us and the very idea of us. At least that's what she tried to tell us, but it's not actually that. It's really that she wants Alan so badly that she's determined not to let anything stop her from having him. I, I never knew before that anybody could want anybody else quite like that. She's so fierce and blind about it that she simply doesn't care what may happen later. I don't see what we can do. You don't think that perhaps she can make herself live like a norm? Cut out the other altogether? It'd be too difficult? Uncle Axel asked. We've thought about that, of course, I told him. She can refuse to respond. She's doing that now, like somebody refusing to talk. But to go on with it, it'd be like taking a vow of silence for the rest of her life. I mean, she can't just make herself forget and become a norm. We can't believe that's possible. Michael told her it'd be like pretending to have only one arm because the person one wants to marry has only one arm. It wouldn't be any good. You couldn't keep it up either. Uncle Axel pondered for a bit. You're convinced she's crazy about this, Alan, quite beyond reason, I mean, he asked. Oh, she's not like herself at all. She doesn't think properly anymore, I told him. Before she stopped responding, her thought shapes were all queer with it. Uncle Axel shook his head disapprovingly again. Women like to think they're in love when they want to marry. They feel it's a justification which helps their self-respect, he observed. No harm in that. Most of them are going to need all the illusions they can keep up anyway. But a woman who is in love is a different proposition. She lives in a world where all the old perspectives have altered. She is blinkered, single-purposed, undependable in other matters. She will sacrifice anything, including herself, to one loyalty. For her, that is quite logical. For everyone else, it looks not quite sane. Socially, it is dangerous. And when there is also a feeling of guilt to be overcome and may be expiated, it is quite certainly dangerous for someone. He broke off and reflected in silence a while. Then he added, It is too dangerous, Davy. Remorse, abnegation, self-sacrifice, the desire for purification all pressing upon her, the sense of burden, the need for help, for someone to share the burden. Sooner or later, I'm afraid, Davy. Sooner or later. I thought so, too. But what can we do? I repeated miserably. He turned steady, serious eyes on me. How much are you justified in doing? One of you is set on a course which is going to endanger the lives of all eight. Not altogether knowingly, perhaps, but nonetheless seriously for all that. Even if she does intend to be loyal to you, she is deliberately risking you all for her own ends. Just a few words in her sleep would be enough. Does she have a moral right to create a constant threat hanging over seven heads just because she wants to live with this man? I hesitated. Well, if you put it like that, I began, I do put it like that. Has she that right? We've done our best to dissuade her, I evaded inadequately, and failed. So now what? 
Are you just going to sit down under it, not knowing what day she may crack and give you all away? I don't know, was all I could tell him. Listen, said Uncle Axel. I knew a man once who was one of a party who were adrift in a boat after their ship had burnt. They'd not much food and very little water. One of them drank seawater and went mad. He tried to wreck the boat so that they'd all drown together. He was a menace to all of them. In the end, I had to throw him overboard, with the result that the other three had just enough food and water to last until they reached land. If they hadn't done it, he'd have died anyway, and the rest of them too, most likely. I shook my head. No, I said decisively. We couldn't do that. He went on looking at me steadily. This isn't a nice, cosy world for anyone, especially not for anyone that's different, he said. Maybe you're not the kind to survive in it after all. It isn't just that, I told him. If it were Alan you were talking about, if it would help to throw him overboard, we'd do it. But it's Anne you're meaning, and we can't do it. Not because she's a girl, it'd be the same with any of us. We just couldn't do it. We're all too close together. I'm much closer to her and the others than I am to my own sisters. It's difficult to explain. I broke off, trying to think of a way of showing him what we meant to one another. There didn't seem to be any clear way of putting it into words. I could only tell him, not very effectively. It wouldn't be just murder, Uncle Axel. It'd be something worse as well, like violating part of ourselves forever. We couldn't do it. The alternative is a sword over your heads, he said. I know, I agreed unhappily. But that isn't the way. A sword inside us would be worse. I could not even discuss that solution with the others for fear that Anne might catch our thoughts, but I knew with certainty what their verdict on it would be. I knew that Uncle Axel had proposed the only practical solution, and I knew, too, its impossibility meant recognizing that nothing could be done. Anne now transmitted nothing whatever. We caught no trace of her, but whether she had the strength of will not to receive we were still uncertain. From Rachel, her sister, we learnt that she would listen only to words, and was doing her best to pretend to herself that she was a norm in every way. But that could not give us enough confidence for us to exchange our thoughts with freedom. And in the following weeks Anne kept it up, so that one could almost believe that she had succeeded in renouncing her difference and becoming a norm. Her wedding day arrived with nothing amiss, and she and Alan moved into the house which her father gave them on the edge of his own land. Here and there one encountered hints that she might have been unwise to marry beneath her, but otherwise there was little comment. During the next few months we heard scarcely anything of her. She discouraged visits from her sister as though she were anxious to cut even that last link with us. We could only hope that she was being more successful and happier than we had feared. One of the consequences, as far as Rosalind and I were concerned, was a more searching consideration of our own troubles. Quite when it was that we had known that we were going to marry one another, neither of us has been able to remember. It was one of those things that seemed ordained, in such proper accord with the law of nature and our own desires that we felt we had always known it. The prospect coloured our thoughts even before we acknowledged it to ourselves. To me, it had never been thinkable that anything else should happen, for when two people have grown up thinking together as closely as we had, 
and when they are drawn even closer together by the knowledge of hostility all around them, they can feel the need of one another even before they know they are in love. But when they do know they are in love, they suddenly know too that there are ways in which they differ not at all from norms. Also, they face the same obstacles that norms would. The feud between our families, which had first come into the open over the matter of the great horses, had now been established for years. My father and half-uncle Angus, Rosalind's father, had settled down to a regular guerrilla. In their efforts to score points, each kept a hawk-like watch upon the other's land for the least deviation or offence, and both had been known for some time now to reward the informer who would bring news of irregularities in the other's territory. My father, in his determination to maintain a higher level of rectitude than Angus, had made considerable personal sacrifices. He had, for instance, in spite of his great liking for tomatoes, given up growing the unstable Solanaceae family at all. We bought our tomatoes now, and our potatoes. Certain other species, too, were blacklisted as unreliable at some inconvenience and expense, and though it was a state of affairs which promoted high normality rates on both farms, it did nothing whatever to make for good neighbourliness. It was perfectly clear that neither side would be anything but dead set against a union of the families. For both of us, the situation was bound to grow more difficult. Already Rosalind's mother had attempted some matchmaking, and I had seen my mother measuring one or two girls with a calculating, though so far unsatisfied, eye. We were sure that, at present, neither side had an idea of anything between us. There was no more than acrid communication between the Storms and the Mortons, and the only place where they could be found beneath the same roof was church. Rosalind and I met infrequently and very discreetly. For the present there was an impasse, and it looked like an impasse of indefinite duration, unless we should do something to force the situation. There was a possible way, and could we have been sure that Angus Roth would have taken the form of forcing a shotgun wedding, we would have taken it. But we were by no means certain about that. Such was his opposition to all storms that there was, we considered, a strong likelihood that he might be prompted to use the gun another way. Moreover, we were sure that even if honour were forcibly preserved, we should both of us be disowned by our families thereafter. We discussed and explored lengthily for some pacific way out of the dilemma, but even when half a year had passed since Anne's marriage, we were no nearer reaching it. As for the rest of our group, we found that in six months the first alarm had lost its edge. That is not to say that we were easy in our minds. We had never been that since we discovered ourselves. But we had had to get used to living with a degree of threat. And once the crisis over Anne had passed, we got used to living with a slightly increased degree of threat. Then, one Sunday at dusk, Alan was found dead in the field path that led to his home, with an arrow through his neck. We had the news first from Rachel, and we listened anxiously as she tried to make contact with her sister. She used all the concentration she could manage, but it was useless. Anne's mind remained as firmly closed against us as it had been for the last eight months. Even in distress she transmitted nothing. I'm going over to see her, Rachel told us.
She must have someone by her. We waited expectantly for an hour or more. Then Rachel came through again, very perturbed. She won't see me. She won't let me into the house. She's let a neighbour in, but not me. She screamed at me to go away. She must think one of us did it, came Michael's response. Did any of you do it, or know anything about it? Our denials came in emphatically, one after the other. We've got to stop her thinking that, Michael decided. She mustn't go on believing it. Try to get through to her. We all tried, but there was no response whatever. No good, Michael admitted. You must get a note to her somehow, Rachel, he added. Word it carefully so that she'll understand we had nothing to do with it, but so that it won't mean anything to anyone else. Very well, I'll try, Rachel agreed doubtfully. Another hour passed before we heard from her once more. It's no good. I gave the note to the woman who was there and waited. When the woman came back, she said Anne just tore it up without opening it. My mother's in there now, trying to persuade her to come home. Michael was slow in replying to that. Then he advised, We'd best be prepared. All of you make ready to run for it if necessary, but don't rouse any suspicions. Rachel, keep on trying to find out what you can, and let us know at once if anything happens. I did not know what to do for the best. Petra was already in bed, and I could not rouse her without it being noticed. Besides, I was not sure that it was necessary. She certainly could not be suspected even by Anne of having had any part in the killing of Alan. It was only potentially that she could be considered one of us at all, so I made no move beyond sketching a rough plan in my mind, and trusted that I should have enough warning to get us both clear. The house had retired for the night before Rachel came through again. We're going home, Mother and me, she told us. Anne's turned everyone out, and she's alone there now. Mother wanted to stay, but Anne is beside herself and hysterical. She made them go. They were afraid she'd be worse if they insisted on staying. She's told Mother she knows who's responsible for Alan's death, but wouldn't name anybody. You do think she means us? After all, it is possible that Alan may have had some bitter quarrel of his own that we know nothing about, Michael suggested. Rachel was more than dubious. If it were only that, she'd surely have let me in. She wouldn't have screamed at me to go away, she pointed out. I'll go over early in the morning and see if she's changed her mind. With that, we had to be content for the moment. We could relax a little for a few hours at least. Rachel told us later what happened the following morning. She had got up an hour after dawn and made her way across the fields to Anne's house. When she reached it, she had hesitated a little, reluctant to face the possibility of the same sort of screaming repulse that she had suffered the previous day. However, it was useless simply to stand there looking at the house. She plucked up courage and raised a knocker. The sound of it echoed inside and she waited. There was no result. She tried the knocker again, more decisively. Still no one answered. Rachel became alarmed. She hammered the knocker vigorously and stood listening. Then slowly and apprehensively she lowered her hand from the knocker and went over to the house of the neighbour who had been with Anne the previous day. With one of the logs from the woodpile they pushed in a window and then climbed inside. They found Anne upstairs in her bedroom, hanging from a beam. 
they took her down between them and laid her on the bed. They were too late by some hours to help her. The neighbour covered her with a sheet. To Rachel, it was all unreal. She was dazed. The neighbour took her by the arm to lead her out. As they were leaving, she noticed a folded sheet of paper lying on the table. She picked it up. This'll be for you, or maybe your parents, she said, putting it into Rachel's hand. Rachel looked at it dully, reading the inscription on the outside. But it's not... she began automatically. Then she checked herself, and pretended to look at it more closely, as it occurred to her that the woman could not read. Oh, I see. Yes, I'll give it to them, she said and slipped into the front of her dress the message that was addressed neither to herself nor to her parents, but to the inspector. The neighbour's husband drove her home. She broke the news to her parents. Then, alone in her room, the one that Anne had shared with her before she had married, she read the letter. It denounced all of us, including Rachel herself and even Petra. It accused us collectively of planning Alan's murder, and one of us, unspecified, of carrying it out. Rachel read it through twice, then carefully burnt it. The tension eased for the rest of us after a day or two. Anne's suicide was a tragedy, but no one saw any mystery about it. A young wife, pregnant with her first child, thrown off her mental balance by the shock of losing her husband in such circumstances, it was a lamentable result, but understandable. It was Alan's death that remained unattributable to anyone, and as much of a mystery to us as to the rest. Inquiries had revealed several persons who had a grudge against him, but none with a strong enough motive for murder, nor any likely suspect who could not convincingly account for himself at the time when Alan must have been killed. Old William Tay acknowledged the arrow to be one of his making, but then most of the arrows in that district were of his making. It was not a competition shaft, or identifiable in any way, just a plain, everyday hunting arrow such as might be found by the dozen in any house. People gossiped, of course, and speculated. From somewhere came a rumour that Anne was less devoted than had been supposed, that for the last few weeks she had seemed to be afraid of him. To the great distress of her parents it grew into a rumour that she had let fly the arrow herself, and then committed suicide out of either remorse or the fear of being found out. That that too died away when again no sufficiently strong motive could be discovered. In a few weeks speculation found other topics. The mystery was written off as unsolvable. It might even have been an accident which the culprit dared not acknowledge. We had kept our ears wide open for any hint of guesswork or supposition that might lead attention towards us, but there was none at all, and as the interest declined, we were able to relax. But although we felt less anxiety than we had at any time for nearly a year, an underlying effect remained, a sense of warning, with a sharpened awareness that we were set apart, with the safety of all of us lying in the hands of each. We were grieved for Anne, but the grief was made less sharp by the feeling that we really had lost her some time before. And it was only Michael 
who did not seem to share in the lightning of anxiety. He said, One of us has been found not strong enough. Chapter 11 The spring inspections that year were propitious. Only two fields in the whole district were on the first cleansing schedule, and neither of them belonged to my father or to half-uncle Angus. The two previous years had been so bad that people who had hesitated during the first to dispose of stock with a tendency to produce deviational offspring had killed them off in the second, with the result that the normality rate was high on that side too. Moreover, the encouraging trend was maintained. It put new heart into people. They became more neighbourly and cheerful. By the end of May, there were quite a lot of bets laid that the deviation figures were going to touch a record low. Even old Jacob had to admit that divine displeasure was in abeyance for the time being. Merciful the Lord is, he said with a touch of disapproval. Given them one last chance. Let's hope they mend their ways or it'll be bad for all of us next year. Still time for plenty to go wrong this year for the matter of that. There was, however, no sign of a falling off. The later vegetables showed nearly as high a degree of orthodoxy as the field crops. The weather, too, looked set to give a good harvest, and the inspector spent so much of his time sitting quietly in his office that he became almost popular. For us, as for everyone else, it looked like being a serene, if industrious, summer, and possibly it would have been so, but for Petra. It was one day early in June that, inspired apparently by a feeling for adventure, she did two things she knew to be forbidden. First, although she was alone, she rode her pony off our own land. And secondly, she was not content to keep to the open country, but went exploring in the woods. The woods about Wacknook are, as I have said, considered fairly safe, but it does not do to count on that. Wild cats will seldom attack unless desperate. They prefer to run away. Nevertheless, it is unwise to go into the woods without a weapon of some kind, for it is possible for larger creatures to work their way down the necks of forest which thrust out of the fringes, almost clear across wild country in some places, and then slink from one tract of woodland to another. Petra's call came as suddenly and unexpectedly as before. Though it did not have the violent, compulsive panic which it had carried last time, it was intense. The degree of distress and anxiety was enough to be highly uncomfortable at the receiving end. Furthermore, the child had no control at all. She simply radiated an emotion which blotted out everything else with a great amorphous splodge. I tried to get through to the others to tell them I'd attend to it, but I couldn't make contact even with Rosalind. A blotting like that is hard to describe. Something like being unable to make oneself heard against a loud noise, but also something like trying to see through a fog. To make it worse, it gave no picture or hint of the cause. It was... This attempt to explain one sense in terms of others is bound to be misleading. But one might say it was something like a wordless yell of protest. Just a reflex emotion, no thought or control. I doubted even if she knew she was doing it at all. It was instinctive. All I could tell was that it was a distress signal, and coming from some distance away. I ran from the forge where I was working and got the gun, the one that always hung just inside the house door, ready charged and primed for an emergency. In a couple of minutes I had one of the horses saddled up and was away on it. One thing as definite about the call as its quality was its direction. 
Once I was out on the green lane, I thumped my heels and was off at a gallop towards the west woods. If Petra had only let up on that overpowering distress pattern of hers for just a few minutes, long enough for the rest of us to get in touch with one another, the consequences would have been quite different. Indeed, there might have been no consequences at all. But she did not. She kept it up like a screen, and there was nothing one could do but make for the source of it as quickly as possible. Some of the going wasn't good. I took a tumble at one point and lost more time catching the horse again. Once in the woods the ground was harder, for the track was kept clear and fairly well used to save a considerable circuit. I held on along it until I realised I had overshot. The undergrowth was too thick to allow of a direct line, so I had to turn back and hunt for another track in the right direction. There was no trouble about the direction itself. Not for a moment did Petra let up. At last I found a path, a narrow, frustratingly winding affair overhung by branches beneath which I had to crouch as the horse thrust its way along, but its general trend was right. At last the ground became clearer, and I could choose my own way. A quarter of a mile further on I pushed through more undergrowth and reached an open glade. Petra herself I did not see at first. It was her pony that caught my attention. It was lying on the far side of the glade with its throat torn open, working at it, ripping flesh from its haunch with such single-minded intent that it had not heard my approach, was as deviational a creature as I had seen. The animal was a reddish-brown, dappled with both yellow and darker brown spots. Its huge pad-like feet were covered with mops of fur, matted with blood now on the forepaws, and showing long curved claws. Fur hung from the tail, too, in a way that made it look like a huge plume. The face was round, with eyes like yellow glass. The ears were wide-set and drooping, the nose almost retrousse. Two large incisors projected downwards over the lower jaw, and it was using these as well as the claws to tear at the pony. I started to unsling the gun from my back. The movement caught its attention. It turned its head and crouched motionless, glaring at me, with the blood glistening on the lower half of its face. Its tail rose and waved gently from side to side. I cocked the gun and was in the act of raising it when an arrow took the creature in the throat. It leapt, rising into the air, and landed on all fours, facing me still, with its yellow eyes glaring. My horse took fright and reared, and my gun exploded into the air, but before the creature could spring, two more arrows took it, one in the hindquarters, the other in the head. It stood, stock still for a moment, and then rolled over. Rosalind rode into the glade from my right, her bow still in her hand. Michael appeared from the other side, a fresh arrow already on his string, and his eyes fixed on the creature, making sure about it. Even though we were so close to one another, we were close to Petra too, and she was still swamping us. Where is she? Rosalind asked in words. We looked round and then spotted the small figure twelve feet up a young tree. She was sitting in a fork and clinging round the trunk with both arms. Rosalind rode under the tree and told her it was safe to come down. Petra went on clinging, and she seemed unable to let go or to move. I dismounted, climbed the tree and helped her down until Rosalind could reach up and take her. Rosalind seated her astride her saddle in front of her and tried to soothe her. But Petra was looking down at her own dead pony. Her distress was, if anything, intensified. We must stop this, I said to Rosalind. She'll be bringing all the others here. 
Michael, assured that the creature was really dead, joined us. He looked at Petra worriedly. She has no idea she's doing it. It's not intelligent. She's sort of howling with fright inside. It'd be better for her to howl outwardly. Let's start by getting her where she can't see her pony. We moved off a little, round a screen of bushes. Michael spoke to her quietly, trying to encourage her. She did not seem to understand, and there was no weakening of her distress pattern. Perhaps if we were all to try the same thought pattern on her simultaneously, I suggested. Soothing, sympathizing, relaxing. Ready? We tried for a full fifteen seconds. There was just a momentary check in Petra's distress. Then it crowded us down again. No good, said Rosalind, and let up. The three of us regarded her helplessly. The pattern was a little changed. The incisiveness of alarm had receded, but the bewilderment and distress were still overwhelming. She began to cry. Rosalind put an arm around her and held her close to her. Let her have it out. It'll relax the tension, said Michael. While we were waiting for her to calm down, the thing that I had been afraid of happened. Rachel came riding out of the trees. A moment later, a boy rode in from the other side. I'd never seen him until now, but I knew he must be Mark. We had never met as a group before. It is one of the things that we had known would be unsafe. It was almost certain that the other two girls would be somewhere on the way, too, to complete a gathering that we had decided must never happen. Hurriedly, we explained in words what had occurred. We urged them to get away and disperse as soon as possible, so that they would not be seen together. Michael, too. Rosalind and I would stay with Petra and do our best to calm her. The three of them appreciated the situation without argument. A moment later they left us, riding off in different directions. We went on trying to comfort and soothe Petra with little success. Some ten minutes later, the two girls, Sally and Catherine, came pushing their way through the bushes. They, too, were on horseback and with their bows strung. We had hoped that one of the others might have met them and turned them back, but clearly they had approached by a different route. They came closer, staring incredulously at Petra. We explained all over again in words and advised them to go away. They were about to, in the act of turning their horses, when a large man on a bay mare thrust out of the trees in the open. He reined in and sat looking at us. What's going on here? he demanded with suspicion in his tone. He was a stranger to me and I did not care for the look of him. I asked what one usually asked of strangers. Impatiently he pulled out his identity tag with the current year's punch mark on it. I showed my own. It was established that we were neither of us outlaws. What's all this? he repeated. The temptation was to tell him to mind his own damned business, but I thought it more tactful in the circumstances to be placatory. I explained that my sister's pony had been attacked and that we had answered her calls for help. He wasn't willing to take that at its face value. He looked at me steadily and then turned to regard Sally and Catherine. Maybe. But what brought you two here in such a hurry? He asked them. Naturally, we came when we heard the child calling, Sally told him. I was right behind you and I heard no calling, he said. Sally and Catherine looked at one another. Sally shrugged. We did, she told him shortly. It seemed about time I took a hand. <laughs> 
I'd have thought everyone for miles around would have heard it, I said. The pony was screaming too, poor little brute. I led him round the clump of bushes and showed him the savaged pony and the dead creature. He looked surprised, as if he'd not expected that evidence. But he wasn't altogether appeased. He demanded to see Rosalind's and Petra's tags. Oh, what's this all about? I asked in my turn. You didn't know that the fringes have got spies out? He said. I didn't, I told him. Anyway, do we look like fringes people? He ignored the question. Well, they have. There's an instruction to watch for them. There's trouble working up, and the clearer you keep of the woods, the less likely you are to meet it before we all do. He still was not satisfied. He turned to look at the pony again, then at Sally. I'd say it's near half an hour since that pony did any screaming. How did you two manage to come straight to this spot? Sally's eyes widened a little. Well, this was the direction it came from, and then when we got nearer we heard the little girl screaming, she said simply. And very good it was of you to follow it up, I put in. You would have saved her life by doing it if we hadn't happened to be a little nearer. It's all over now, and luckily she wasn't hurt. But she's had a nasty fright, and I'd better get her home. Thank you both for wanting to help. They took that up all right. They congratulated us on Petra's escape, hoped she would soon get over the shock, and then rode off. The man lingered. He still seemed dissatisfied and a little puzzled. There was, however, nothing for him to take a firm hold of. Presently he gave the three of us a long, searching stare, looking as if he were about to say something more, but he changed his mind. Finally he repeated his advice to keep out of the woods, and then rode off in the wake of the other two. We watched him disappear among the trees. Who is he? Rosalind asked uneasily. I could tell her that the name on his tag had been Jerome Skinner, but no more. He was a stranger to me, and our names had not seemed to mean much to him. I would have asked Sally, but for the barrier that Petra was still putting up. It gave me a strange, muffled feeling to be cut off from the rest like that, and made me wonder at the strength of purpose which had enabled Anne to withdraw herself entirely for those months. End of Disc 3